After a long and rather heated debate, the Mormon finally said to Twain, can you find for me a single passage of scripture that forbids polygamy? Certainly, Mark Twain replied, no man can serve two masters. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 29, we're going to continue uh, in the life of Jacob. You know we have probably a habit here in Manna of not necessarily preaching through on Christmas Sunday or any holiday that particular Sunday sermon. By the way, how many of you in 8 o'clock service? Was that not off the charts? Uh, unbelievable. You have to go to 11 o'clock if you haven't heard Pastor Roger's sermon. So we're going to pick up uh, the story in, in, um, in Genesis, uh, the story of Jacob. There were um, two lines of husbands in heaven. One for dominant husbands and one for passive, submissive husbands. The passive husband line extended almost out of sight. There was only one man in the dominant husband line. He was small, timid, and appeared almost anything but dominant. When an angel asked him why he was in this line, he said, my wife told me to stand here. <laughs> Some of you resemble that. We're continuing our study in the life of Jacob, and today we're going to look at Jacob's marriages, plural, and his complicated family. Speaking of families, Marin and I have been informed by Mia and Brian that we are to become grandparents. So we will be blubbering mush balls just like you, and you will giggle and point and say they don't know what they're doing as grandparents, and you're absolutely right, but we are thrilled and... Um, Please continue to keep Brian and Mia in prayer. Uh, speaking of families, uh, Jacob is the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. Jacob had an older twin brother named Esau. And just to give you a little bit of the background, Jacob uh, lied to his father Isaac and stole his brother's blessing. And as a result, Esau planned on killing him. This is your family, our family, human families at their finest. So Jacob's parents... Isaac and Rebekah arranged for Jacob to leave town quickly and travel 550 miles northeast to Rebekah's home country of Haran, H-A-R-A-N. This is where Father Abraham came from well over a century before. His parents told him, don't marry a Canaanite pagan woman of this region, but we want you to go back to our hometown, home country, and marry a woman of faith from Rebekah's family. As you recall, last week while Jacob was traveling to the land of Canaan and in, uh, in the city of Luz, now known as Bethel, God met him and reiterated his promise that he had made to Abraham and Isaac. God promised Jacob three things, the same three things he promised Abraham and Isaac. 
I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. I'm going to give you a large family. And amazingly enough, I'm going to bless the entire world through your family. Now, that's a remarkable series of promises because right now, when God made that promise to Jacob, he is a lying, self-centered, manipulative, deceiving schmuck. However, God has plans to make Jacob the spiritual leader of God's people on planet Earth. That's good news for you and I. Because it's important for us to understand that God's view of us is never limited by what we are now. God always sees what he will make of us in the future. God's confidence in your future has nothing to do with your ability because he knows what it is. His confidence in what he's going to do in our life is based on his supernatural authority and power as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So when you look in the mirror, understand you see what you are now. God sees what he will make of you in the future. And that gives us hope. When we look at Jacob today and Jacob's family, you will cringe. And you will say, this is really unbelievable. How is God ever going to get glory out of this situation? God is going to reshape Jacob's character in the furnace of difficulty because Jacob has an enormous number of spiritual lessons to learn. And God drafts Jacob and puts him in a spiritual boot camp that lasts 20 years. Jacob needs to learn to trust God and not trust his own schemes. This guy's a conniver. He's used to doing it his way. He's a fox. He's going to figure it out. And Jacob, the deceiver, needs to learn that God hates deceit. And the way God's going to teach Jacob to hate deceit is he's going to put him under a teacher called his very own Uncle Laban, who is a better con artist than Jacob is himself. So Jacob, the liar, is going to learn about lying from a better liar than himself. The story at this point is Jacob has worked for Laban for seven years for the right to marry his youngest daughter, Rachel. The seven-year labor was to pay the bride price to pay the dowry, because Jacob didn't come with anything. He came empty-handed. So he's going to pay the dowry to her father, Laban, with labor, work. And he's finished up the seven years, and on their wedding night, Laban the deceiver substitutes his oldest daughter, Leah, in Rachel's place. And remember in that day, we talked last week when you went to weddings, the bride was heavily veiled. It was night. Jacob had probably been drinking. Rachel and Leah were in on the con. She was wearing Rachel's clothing, probably had Rachel's perfume on. And Jacob wakes up in the morning and realizes he has been lied to because he married the wrong woman. And he's figured it out in daylight. So he confronts Laban and he's told it's customary. We always marry the older daughter before the younger daughter. However, Jacob, if you will work for me for another seven years, you can marry the woman you intended to marry in the first place, which was Rachel. And by the way, you can marry her as soon as this wedding ceremony is over between you and Leah. So he works seven years, marries the wrong woman, is told if he'll work another seven years, he can marry Rachel within the seven-day period, right after their wedding, because weddings lasted seven days. So within eight days... Jacob marries two sisters. 
you know right now this story is not going to end happily ever after, don't you? This is going to be Heartbreak Hotel. You know it right up front. So we're going to take a look at the family dynamics in this household. And it is a house that's filled with jealousy and envy and insecurity and passivity and manipulation, just like many homes today. The good news is that God uses only one kind of people. God only uses broken, imperfect people to accomplish His purposes on planet Earth, so you and I all qualify. God uses this messed up family to bring the Savior to the world. And God has plans for us and our families as well. So if you'd pick up the narrative with me, go to Genesis 29 and start at verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Verse 31, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The story is told that Mark Twain was once lecturing in Utah, and a Mormon acquaintance of his argued with him on the subject of polygamy. After a long and rather heated debate, the Mormon finally said to Twain, Can you find for me a single passage of Scripture that forbids polygamy? Certainly, Mark Twain replied, No man can serve two masters. <laughs> Some of us have enough trouble with one. So, mom and dad, Rebecca and Isaac, played favorites with their son. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. Jacob is doing the exact same thing in his house. He's playing favorites with his wives. Just like Esau and Jacob competed to be first, Leah and Rachel are going to compete to be first. Jake, God has promised Jacob that he's going to make of him a great nation that will bless the entire world. And a great nation means lots of children. Children were very highly prized in that culture. It was an agricultural society. And children were labor for the ranch today. You were, these were herders. They had sheep and goats and cattle. You needed lots of labor to do farming. And children were free labor. And children were also economic security in old age because there was no social security or any other government program. You went and lived with your oldest son. So children were economic security. They were very highly prized. The highest calling for a wife was to bear children. There was no greater shame than to be childless. It was considered a curse. It was considered judgment from God not to have children. Never forget that God is always in control regardless of our plans. I know some of you have plans. And it's been said, when you tell God your plans, He smiles. Jacob planned to marry Rachel. God intended Jacob to marry Leah. Jacob intended to build his family through Rachel, but God opened Leah's womb and closed Rachel's womb. Jacob ignored Leah, neglected her, but God gave her children to build Jacob's family and to remind Jacob that it was a sin to neglect his wife. Verse 32. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, get your pen out, surely now my husband will love me. Underline that. Verse 33, Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am loved, 
unloved. Therefore, he has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, she named him Levi. And she conceived again. Aren't you tired already? <laughs> and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Here's the principle. God's design for the husband is to love his wife and lead his family under God's authority and direction. God's design is for the husband to love his wife and lead his family under God's authority and direction. Leah probably bore these four sons in four years. She was probably an older mother for that period of time. Remember, we said last week, it seems that Laban had trouble marrying Leah off. That's why he conned Jacob into marrying the older before the younger. So Leah probably knew what it was like to be considered an old maid. That doesn't mean she was old. In that era, if you were not married and had children before you hit 20, you were considered old. So I don't know what her age was. We think she's probably in her mid to late 20s at this point in time because we're pretty sure Rachel's about 25. So she might be in her late 20s at this point because she's the older. She's been blessed with children. Leah should be ecstatic. Because sons were economic security. They were highly valued. But Leah is miserable. She deeply feels Jacob's rejection. She knows that Jacob prefers her sister, Rachel. I want you to notice the names she gives her children. And more importantly, why she gives her children those names. Reuben means see a son. See, behold, a son. Look, there's a son. Great. I mean, it's exciting, right? She's amazed. The reason she gives him the name is she said, surely now my husband will love me. That's pretty heartbreaking. She names number two, Simeon, which Simeon means one who hears. It means hearing. She says, the Lord has heard that I am loved. I'm going to call him Simeon. Number three, mean Levi means attached. This time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Finally, when she conceived Judah, she names him Judah, which means praise. This time I will praise the Lord. Leah is desperate for Jacob's love, and she feels that she has to earn it by bearing children. And the more children she bears, the more Jacob will love her. There's just a clue. When your wife gives your children names that reflect her feelings that you don't love her, your marriage is in trouble. Jacob was clueless. He should have picked up the clues that he's been neglecting Leah. And apparently he's been spending most nights where? In Rachel's tent, not Leah's tent. All right? Gentlemen, if you're a husband, part of loving your wife means knowing her needs and meeting her needs. And if you don't know what your wife needs... I've got two clues for you. Who should you talk to first? Ask God to show you. I didn't say this was going to be comfortable. Ask God to show you. He will. And number two, ask your bride. She will tell you. She might say, you should know. And she's right. You should know. That's part of your calling is to understand the needs of your wife. Now, Jacob has got two wives, so he needs extra discernment, and he has none. Zero, right? Here's the part that convicts me. 
Once you know the needs of your wife, gentlemen, you are called to sacrifice your schedule to meet her needs. And that just sticks a knife right through me because that is very difficult for a maniac like me to sacrifice my schedule. But that is important. You can hold me accountable for that one. That's easier said than done, but it's essential. Mia's smiling and said, I'll hold you accountable, Dad. (laughs) And she will. Chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore children, bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go unto her that she may bear upon my knees that I too that I, through her I too may have children. And these three verses is packed human foolishness and tragedy. Here's the principle, and it's a crucial principle. Sometimes God gives us unsolvable problems to teach us spiritual lessons. We need to ask God to teach us and then follow His lesson plan, not ours. Sometimes God gives us unsolvable problems to teach us spiritual lessons. We need to ask God to teach us and then follow His lesson plan, not ours. Now, Rachel is childless. She's insecure and she's jealous of her sister. Her sister has born four sons and she is barren. She knows that Jacob loves her. She knows that Jacob loves her more. But she also knows that her sister is having children and those children will take care of Leah because they're going to inherit Jacob's estate. And Rachel, without children, will be all alone when Jacob dies. So she goes to Jacob in desperation and she demands that he give her children or she is going to die. Rachel is crying for help legitimately, but she's talking to the wrong person. Jacob is not the problem. By the way, Jacob's not the solution either. What Rachel needs is Jacob's understanding and encouragement. What she gets is Jacob's anger and frustration. And as a husband, Jacob should have known better. Remember, Jacob's grandmother was who? What's Abraham's wife? Sarah. How old was Sarah when she finally conceived Isaac? 90. 90. Long time. Jacob knew that his own mother, Rebekah, had been unable to conceive. Jacob's mother, Isaac, and his dad, I mean, Isaac and Rebekah were married for 20 years before she conceived twins. And she couldn't conceive, and he knew that. So he yells at her. Do you think I'm God who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? And what, Jacob got one thing right. He got the diagnosis right. God is the one who had withheld children from Rachel. They don't know why God prevented Rachel from being pregnant any more than they know why Leah has four children in four years. Here's a supposition. It's extraordinarily likely that Rachel was very, very pretty. It says she's beautiful of form and face. It's also extremely likely that she was very, very proud. 
Rachel's the youngest, the prettiest, so she's beautiful, but she may well be a brat. Rachel was probably used to getting her way. God wanted to teach Rachel to depend on him and not depend on her beauty. To depend on the Lord and not depend on her ability to get her own way. And the best way to teach Rachel to depend on the Lord is give her a problem that is insolvable without divine assistance. So you and I have problems. And we say, well, yeah, some of those problems are my own foolishness. Some of them are somebody else's foolishness. But all problems pass your father's desk before they get to yours. And all problems that God gives us have purpose. God always has lessons in the problems. Our challenge is, do we bring those to him and ask him to teach us, or are we going to try and fix it? Remember that when Rebekah was unable to conceive, Isaac prayed to the Lord, and then he waited on God, and in God's time, Rebekah conceived and had twins, Jacob and Esau. Right now would have been a great time for Jacob to exercise some spiritual leadership, to pray for Rachel, to pray with Rachel, and ask God to show them what his plans were, and ask God to reveal what he wanted them to do next. However, Jacob's still trying to control everything himself. He's not depending on the Lord, and he's not doing a really good job of it, and he really needs God's help. Think about it. Every night, Jacob has a major, major decision to make that is fraught with complications. Who's he going to sleep with? Leah or Rachel? No matter what he does, 50% of his wives are really unhappy with him every night. Yeah? Now, and if he chooses to do what I would do, go out and sleep with the sheep in the field... Both his wives are angry with him. He's in trouble. He needs discernment. Rachel is so desperate to have a child that she pulls a Sarah. Remember, Sarah and Abraham couldn't get pregnant. God made him wait 25 years. She gives her maidservant Hagar to Abraham, and they have a child together named Ishmael. And the Jews and the Arabs have been at loggerheads for 4,000 years. Rachel gives Jacob her maidservant Bilhah, kind of sort of a secondary, second-class auxiliary surrogate wife, if you will, so they can produce a child together. By the way, the name Bilhah means carefree, just FYI. Bilhah's child with Jacob would be considered Rachel's, and they could legally adopt this child, Rachel and Jacob could. It was very acceptable practice in that period of time, but it wasn't God's plan. It was culturally acceptable, not God's plan. There are a lot of things today in our culture that are acceptable by the culture, but they're not God's plan. You must discern the difference between just because the culture says it's appropriate doesn't mean God says you should do it, right? So it takes discernment to know the difference. So she tells Jacob, go into my maid Bilhah, you produce a child together, we'll adopt him, and that way I'll have children. Jacob should have said, 
We're not going to do that. It's not God's will. Number one. Number two, remember Grandpa Abraham and Grandma Sarah did not work out well. But Jacob wants peace at any price. So he goes along with Rachel's plan, just like Grandpa Abraham did with Grandma Sarah. So Jacob and Bilah have a son whom Rachel names Dan, D-A-N, which means God has vindicated me. It's a conflict term. They produce a second son whom Rachel names Issachar, which means struggle or wrestling. And she says, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So every time you call the name Issachar, it means conflict, wrestling match. Interesting. This competition between these two sisters to produce children is just heartbreaking. And what they're really competing for is Jacob's love. Both of them are insecure with Jacob's love. Both of them are insecure in their relationship. And Jacob does nothing. Jacob is passive. When one of your wives names her children to commemorate victory over her sister, I would think you have a problem. For us today, that's pretty simple. When your spouse has a problem, it's not just their problem. Agreed? Say yes. yes. When your spouse has a problem, it's always our problem. You cannot say that's their problem. It's our problem. We're one flesh. Both wives believe that their value comes from Jacob's love and that his love depends on them bearing children. So bearing children is the predominant drive of their life because that was economic security and they believed that was the ticket to Jacob's love. The truth is, every human value comes from God's unconditional love, not human love, and not our performance. So even today, we have to remember, regardless of how we perform, regardless of what other people think of us, our value does not depend on other people's opinion and it doesn't depend on how we perform. It depends on God's opinion of us. And what has he said? I will never leave you or forsake you. Our security is in that. We know that we are loved because of the cross. As the husband, Jacob should be depending on the Lord himself and teaching his family to depend on the Lord. But Jacob and Rachel try to fix the problem without God. So they miss the spiritual lesson God wants to teach them and they create a mess in the process. And we humans do it all the time. See, Rachel and Jacob think the problem is, is that Rachel's not pregnant. That's not the problem. That's the symptom. The problem is God has a spiritual lesson for them to learn because she's not pregnant. And it's a call to come to the Lord and bring that problem to the Lord and ask him to show them what he wants them to do about it. They don't do that. They want to fix the symptom. So they fix the symptom, but they don't, they don't deal with the underlying problem. And we humans do it all the time. You know what happens when that occurs? You get to take the class over again. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she's got four sons now, she looked at her sister Rachel, she says that worked. 
So Leah took her maid, Zilpah. Each one of these sisters has a maid, Bilhah and Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now the name Zilpah means small nose, just FYI, <laughs> whatever. So Jacob and Zilpah have two sons together. Leah names the first one Gad, which means lucky, fortunate or lucky, right? And she names the second one Asher, which means happy or blessed. Now, Jacob to date has eight sons with four women, three women. Rachel has no sons yet, all of whom are depending on him, and he's failing all of them. Three women's more than enough. I want you to give you an illustration. Go to chapter 30, verse 14. This is just a day in the life. This is just a representative illustration, but it's an interesting one of what this family's like. Leah's oldest son, Reuben, he's probably seven, eight, whatever it happens to be. He discovers some mandrake plants growing in a field and he brings them home to his mother. The mandrake is a plant that bears bluish flowers in the winter and the fruit is yellowish, it's kind of plum size. It's, it's related to the a potato and tomato families. And the, 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 this plant, the mandrake, was very much valued in ancient cultures because it was viewed as an aphrodisiac and an inducer of fertility. It's supposed to solve fertility problems. So it was often called the love apple or the, the devil apple even. Rachel hopes that these mandrakes will solve her fertility problem. So she asks her sister Leah if she can have some. And Leah says, not only did you steal my husband, my husband, because I married him eight days before you did. Now you want to steal my son's mandrakes as well. Leah's had to share Jacob with three other women. Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. It's probably likely that Jacob hasn't spent a whole lot of time in her tent lately. So she cuts a deal with her sister. She says, I'll give you some mandrakes if I get to sleep with Jacob tonight. Rachel's kind of the gatekeeper over Jacob because he spends most of the time in her tent. So we have two sisters making a deal over this man's body for the evening. And Rachel agrees. Verse 16. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, he's hot, weary, tired, sweaty, wore out. He wants to go back to the field after he hears this. Then Leah went out to meet him and said... You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Here's the principle. God's design is for the wife to trust the Lord and submit to her husband, not manipulate him into meeting her needs. God's design is for the wife to trust the Lord and submit to her husband, not manipulate him into meeting her needs. It's not a trivial issue that Jacob, who's always wanted to be large and in charge, has been taking orders from his father-in-law Laban for probably well over 10 years at this point. It's even more revealing that Jacob is now taking orders from his two wives who are bargaining for him like a hired servant. Jacob's passivity is remarkable. Now, he may have liked the sexual variety of four wives, I don't know, but I think his real motivation was, this guy just wants peace at any price. Just peace. Don't hassle me. I, I don't want the harassment. I, you know, 
He's bargaining for short-term peace at any price with these two women who are jealous and insecure. And short-term peace at any price always leads to long-term strife because nothing is resolved. It's just papered over with short-term deal-making. Jacob is not exercising spiritual leadership in any sense of the word. Rachel's faith is not in God. Leah's faith is not in God either. Rachel's trusting the superstition that these mandrakes will solve her fertility problem, and if she only bears children, she'll have security. Leah believes that if only she has more children, Jacob will love her. Both of those are false. Rachel's plans backfire. She remains infertile, but her sister Leah conceives another child. And the first night. You know, human love is wonderful. I'm not denigrating that. But God's love and only God's love will satisfy your soul. There is no human love on planet earth, husband to wife, parent to child, however you want to stretch it. There is no human love that will fill your soul like Jesus. Period. When you give your heart to Jesus, he fills you with the love that you crave. And then you have an overflow to give to others. And what's missing here is these people are all looking to each other, to human sources, to fill their souls with the love and the security they need that only God can give. So husbands and wives and children, human relationships are a gift from God, but they are not a substitute for God. It's interesting here, a few days ago, I was flipping on uh, Cirrus 59. That's Willie's Roadhouse, you know, traditional country western. And if you ever listen to any traditional country western, it's all about human love and she done left me, he done left me, right? The trailer blew away with a hurricane or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> but it's all about this horizontal look at love. My, my, my family is the center of my world. My spouse is the center of my world. And since they left, I've just been drinking myself into oblivion or whatever it happens to be. That's the world we live in. Because what this family illustrates is God is the source, not just of order, but he is the source of life. He is the source of love. He is the source of security. He is the source of satisfaction and contentment. And when he fills your love, your life with his love, now you have something to share and you do not depend on others to make your world work because that's only God can ultimately do that. He works through people, but they're not a substitute for him. Verse 17. God gave heed to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. What's utterly interesting is just like Jacob purchased Esau's birthright with a pot of stew, Leah has purchased the opportunity for more children with Jacob with her son's mandrakes. What goes around, comes around. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband and she names her fifth son Issachar, which means reward or wages. Don't you find that interesting? Every time you call Issachar's name, it's, I paid for you, dude, with some mandrakes. That's where you came from. 
So when you see these 12 tribes, you wonder why there's always this conflict with the 12 tribes about who's the biggest and baddest tribe, and they're always at loggerheads. Starts right here. Starts right here. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth unto Jacob. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons, and she names him Zebulun, which means to dwell. Jacob is still spending most of his time in Rachel's tent, not Leah's tent. Leah's going, I've got you six kids. You're going to sleep with me occasionally? Keep me company? I mean, this is heart cry. This is heartbreak. Verse 21, afterwards, Leah bore a daughter named her Dinah. We'll get to her in a couple weeks. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and God opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph saying, may the Lord give me another son. Joseph literally means to add, to increase. So she has her first son. And Rachel's finally understood that children are a gift from God. There are no accidental children in God's kingdom. No child is born by accident in God's kingdom. It may be an accident from our point of view. There are no accidental children in God's kingdom. Every single child has divine design, divine timing. From beginning to end, every life comes from him, and God has an eternal plan for every life that he gives. Verse 25. Now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me depart. For you yourself know my service which I have rendered to you. But Laban said to him, If it now pleases you, stay with me. For I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. At this point, Jacob has 11 sons. The only one that's not yet born is Benjamin. And he's going to be born within a period. He'll be born within about six years. Eleven sons. He's served Laban now for 14 years. His years of service to pay for Rachel, the first seven, or Leah, the first seven, and Rachel, the second seven, are done. His dowry is paid off. He's bought the right to marry both the daughters, and he wants to go back home to Canaan to see mom and dad, Isaac and Rebecca. Uncle Laban has figured out that he is prospering enormously because God is blessing Jacob, and Jacob is running the ranch for Laban. Now, Laban doesn't follow, obey, know, or love Jacob's God, but Laban loves the material blessings that Jacob's God is bringing to him as a result of Jacob's presence. Jacob tries to talk Laban into continuing to work for him. He tells him he can even name his wages. What's interesting for you and I, I don't think most of us realize where you're working, where you're volunteering, where you're spending your time, God blesses that place because of you. You carry the Holy Spirit with you wherever you go. You carry the name of Jesus. You bring blessing wherever you go if you're submitted and obedient to the Lord. And God blesses the location where you show up if you're obeying because you're His tool. You're His vehicle. 
He works through you. And we don't understand that. And Laban has figured out that because God is blessing Jacob, that blessing goes from Jacob to the environment that Jacob is. And that's what God wants us to be. God says, I've blessed you. I want you to be a blessing. And I'm going to work through you to accomplish that. Laban says, name your wages. Verse 31. Laban said to Jacob, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Verse 32. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from the flock every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. Jacob's figured something out. Last time Laban said, name your wages, Jacob said, I'll serve seven years. Jacob's figured out that Laban's a pretty clever guy, so he's not going to do that again. Jacob did not want Laban to claim that any of Jacob's wealth came from stealing from Laban. So he says to Laban, I'm going to propose a plan to you, and this plan is not going to make sense to you, but I think it's going to be to my advantage. Jacob proposes that Laban pay him not in wages, but in animals, sheep, goats, cattle. And he says, not in animals that are already born, but I want you to pay me in animals that are not yet born, right? You're, you're going to pay me in animals after they're born. Even more, the only animals that you're going to pay me with are animals that are speckled and spotted and striped. Any solid colored animals in the herd, there's yours, Laban. And if you see any solid colored animals in my flock, you will have considered me a thief. So Jacob says, my pay is only future animals, and they have to be speckled and spotted and striped. All solid colored animals belong to you. Now, on the face of it, this looks very disadvantageous to Jacob, because as near as we can tell, Laban's sheep were mostly solid colored. So were the goats. The sheep were white, the goats were black, and the cattle were brown, and the vast majority of them were solid colored. And the laws of genetics would say that solid colored animals most likely would produce what? solid colored offspring. So it looks as though this is a deal that's really favorable to Laban and highly unfavorable to Jacob because statistically most of the offspring should have solid colors. So J Laban jumps on this and says, deal, done, no problem. And he immediately culls out all of the speckled, spotted, and striped animals of the herd and he moves them a three days journey away from the main herd that Jacob is watching because he's not taking any chances then any of those spotted animals are going to mate with solid colored ones and produce any spotted offspring that Jacob could benefit from. So Laban's a rogue, but Jacob is a rogue too. Jacob practices three strategies that he thinks will increase the size of his herd and decrease the size of Laban's herd. These guys are crooks. They're foolish crooks, but they're crooks. First thing Jacob does is he peels the bark off of trees in strips. So I want you to picture a tree branch, and he just strips the bark off. So you'll have bark, no bark, bark, no bark. So it's striped, right? You have dark bark, then you have the white core of the tree branch, then you have the dark bark. 
And he puts those branches, those peeled branches, those striped branches in front of the flock when they're mating because he believes that the visual influence of those striped branches will produce more spotted and striped and speckled offspring. Yeah, he believes it. Second, when the flock is mating, he makes all the flocks face the striped and spotted and speckled animals in the herd. So he puts all those together. And once again, he believes that the visual influence of what this animal will see will produce an offspring like that. Of course, if that worked with humans, we'd have some funky looking kids. Because what you might be looking at at that point might, you know, anyway, don't go there. Third thing. He puts the striped rods only in front of the stronger animals when they're mating because he's hoping to produce stronger animals for his herd and weaker animals for Laban's herd. Now, is Jacob's motives godly here? Marginal. You wouldn't say that he is working for Laban's benefit. You would say he's working for his benefit at Laban's expense. Now, science tells us that none of this works. That visual influence or visual input at the point of conception has no bearing on what the visual appearance of the offspring will be. We know that. But Jacob believed it, and he practiced it. Besides, the results were really impressive. Go to verse 39. It says, the flocks produced stripes speckled and spotted. Go to verse 43. This is what's interesting. The very last verse of chapter 30. So the man, Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous and hired large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, camels were royal transport. If you owned camels in that era, you were way above average wealthy. Understand that this whole exceedingly prosperous business occurred in six years because he left after 20. This, all this stuff started at, eight, at 14 years of service and ended six years later. So Jacob went from nothing to magnificently prosperous in six years. Sounds like Jacob's strategy is working pretty well. The reality is it was God who was prospering Jacob, not Jacob's cleverness. We're going to find out next week in chapter 31. As a matter of fact, turn there. Just go to chapter 31, verse 6. Jacob has a conversation with both daughters of Laban, Leah, and Rachel, his two wives. And he acknowledges that it really was God who brought the blessing. He says in 31.6, You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If your father spoke thus, the speckled and spotted, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if your father spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. Here's the principle. Ultimately, prosperity and protection are the result of God's grace not human effort. Ultimately, all prosperity and protection are the result of God's grace, not human effort. Now, Jacob's been doing what he needed to do. He's been diligently serving Laban. 
just the same way we should serve our employers with diligence as well. So our part is to work diligently as unto the Lord because ultimately, who is your boss? God. Ultimately, who owns everything? So you work diligently as to the Lord because God ultimately owns the business. You know, it's interesting. Yesterday, I braved the crowds and went down to uh, Sprouts. That parking lot is madness. And I had to pick up some stuff. And I came back home and I realized I bought three things. They only charged me for two, right? $10 items. And I thought, are you kidding? I'm going to go back down there and fight the crowds for 10 bucks. And the Holy Spirit said, um, Brad, I own that store. I own the store. I said, I got it. So I'm going back down, right? Pay him 10.29 or whatever it was it happens to be. Anyway, it was such a bad experience with all the crowds, I thought, they owe me 10 bucks. You know, you start lying to yourself. <laughs> they don't owe me anything. I know them. Because God owns everything, including sprouts, right? So our part is to work diligently. God's part is to accomplish his purposes through us, whatever they are. God's part is to do what he wants to do in and through us as he sees fit. God blesses some with much and some with little, depending on his plan for their lives. How much or little you manage is not important. The issue is, are you faithful in managing whatever God has entrusted you with? And I don't mean just money. I mean relationships. I mean influence. I mean health. Your health is a stewardship. You're responsible for it. Your longevity is a stewardship. If you live to 90, you're more accountable than if you live to 30. Every day you get, you're accountable for to God. Manage it well. Steward it well. So the issue is not how much. The issue is how faithful. God entrusted Jacob with much, even though at the time Jacob was plotting and scheming and trusting in his own self and not God. And now Jacob realized, into 20 years, that it's God who's been prospering. It's God who's protected him. It's God who has given him all this. It's taken him 20 years in boot camp. But Jacob is slowly learning to trust God. And God is shaping his character into being the spiritual leader of God's people called the Israelite nation, from whom will come the Messiah. So when we look at this family, you look and you go, oh, how could you screw it up worse? Oh, you got neighbors that are trying really hard. This should teach us, no matter what the circumstances are, just do it. God's way. Just do it God's way. He'll take care of the outcomes. You've got his instruction manual right here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding because you're not that smart. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. The other thing that this should encourage us is that the life and family of Jacob should teach us that God uses imperfect, broken, sinful people to accomplish his purposes because God doesn't see where we are now. God sees what he wants to do in and through us. So let's summarize before Tom comes and leads us in prayer and praise. Number one, God's design is for the husband to do two things. Love his wife, lead his family. 
And the husband is under the authority of who? God himself, and he's accountable to God himself. So the husband should be on his face before God every single day saying, Lord, teach me to love my family, teach me to lead my family as Christ loved the church, laid on my life for the benefit of those I am responsible for. Number two, sometimes God gives us an unsolvable problem to teach us spiritual lessons. We need to ask God to teach us and then follow his lesson plan. You all have problems in your life right now. What is your view on those problems? What's your perspective? Do you view that problem as something to get rid of? God, my idea of your role in my life is to get this problem out of my life. God gave you the problem. For a purpose, we should be asking God, Lord, this problem I've got, or this person I got, because sometimes the problem many times is a person, and we just want God to take him to heaven and be done with it, right? Just make it easy, you know? Just, you live with them. So I don't have to. Ask God for his perspective on the problem. What am I supposed to learn from this problem? How does God want to draw me closer to him with this problem? And sometimes, many times, God gives us unsolvable problems for the precise purpose of causing us to depend wholly on him because we do not have a solution. And if God took the problem away, you know what we would do? Thank you, God. I'll call you next time I need you. And God says, that would not be good. Because if you walk away from me, you're going to get yourself in deep trouble. So I need to keep problems in your life so you will stay close to me and not get stupid. Right? Understand. Ask God to show you the purpose, his purpose behind the problem and what he wants you to do in light of that. Number three. God's design for the wife is to trust the Lord and submit to her husband. Those are in sequential order. Women, you will never submit to your husband if you don't trust the Lord first. Because he's not that good. You do not submit to your husband because he is wise, prudent, thoughtful, and loving. You submit to your husband because God is God. Jacob failed to lead... And his wives failed to follow. And they were not supposed to follow Jacob, number one. They were supposed to follow the Lord, number one. That's the only hope any of us have. Husbands do not have enough wisdom to lead their families without the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Period. Wives, you will never follow, ultimately, if you don't trust that God's in charge of him. And I know that takes a lot of faith sometimes. Manipulation never works. Passivity never works. We have to trust the Lord and deal with reality. And lastly, ultimately, all prosperity, all protection as a result of God's grace, not human effort. So this week, this Christmas, this should give us encouragement. This should give us hope. Because Jesus Christ came to do what? Seeking to save broken families, broken people, and that's us and God wants to use you this season to reach out and share his love with others. Now that you know, love you guys.
Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.